Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Coach Baseball Right podcast. I'm your host and founder of Coach Baseball Right, Steve Nicolaret. Join us as we go inside, outside, and all around baseball, discussing how to coach baseball the right way. Hi, everybody. In today's Coach Baseball Right podcast, I'm really excited to share with you our interview with Turtle Thomas, longtime and successful college baseball coach. Turtle has coached at Clemson University from 1978 to 85 and then at Georgia Tech, 1986 and 87. In 1987, he became the recruiting coordinator at the University of Miami, helping the team to nine College World Series trips in 12 years, including the title in the 1999 College World Series. From 2000 to 2006, he was an assistant coach and recruiting coordinator at LSU, getting three more trips to the College World Series, including the title in 2000. Turtle became a head coach for the first time in 2007 when he took over the helm at Florida International University. In nine years, he won 282 games and led FIU to a pair of conference titles and three NCAA tournament appearances. He recently has worked in the Texas Ranger organization. I'm really excited to share with you Turtle's journey through baseball, his thoughts on recruiting and thoughts on youth baseball. I'm also excited to talk about Turtle's new catching video, which provides valuable instructional materials for catchers and coaches of all levels. Sit back and enjoy our conversation with Turtle Thomas. Hi, everybody. We're here with Turtle Thomas, longtime successful college baseball coach, someone who's been an assistant coach and a head coach at the collegiate level. Turtle, thanks so much for being with us on the Coach Baseball Right podcast. Well, Steve, I appreciate you giving me a call and glad to be on today. Hey, Turtle, our Coach Baseball Right program is all about helping organizations, coaches, and parents transform their baseball experiences and developments. We started this podcast to allow our listeners to hear different perspectives on coaching baseball the right way. Hey, with that being said, let's go ahead and jump into our discussion. Uh, Can you give our listeners a sense of your baseball journey? Well, that's a long one right there. It's been 46 (laughs) years. I, um, I don't really. I started when I was forty-seven, or actually one. So I'm only forty-seven. <laughs> okay. But uh, no, I started out at Clemson University. I was lucky to get on with uh, Bill Wilhelm, who was there for thirty-six years as the head coach. I moved on to Georgia Tech for a couple of years. Uh, I was at the University of Miami for twelve years. I went to LSU for seven. Um, then I went to, to Arizona State, and I got the head job at Florida International, which is where I was living. Um, you know, I, I coached FIU for eight years and, and University of Miami for 12, so I had a home here in Miami. And then from there, and I'd been offered a couple of pro jobs previously, but uh, finally took a pro job with the Texas Rangers and have been with them for a little bit more than six years. And what are you doing right now with the Rangers? <laughs> well, uh, just traveling around a little bit. Uh, I guess they're trying to use whatever little expertise I've got in the game and 
uh, trying to help some of the young coaches because we definitely got a lot of young ones. So just kind of roving around to some different uh, lower affiliates like Dominican Republic, Arizona, Low A, things like that. Hey, Turtle, when you were involved in collegiate baseball, you were known as an outstanding um, college baseball recruiter. How how would you say college baseball recruiting has changed in the last five to ten years? You know, it's, it's interesting because obviously for the last six-plus years, I haven't really been involved in it. But, you know, over the years, there were a lot of things that you could kind of do and there weren't so many rules as uh, as you go along and stuff like that. But today there's certainly lots and lots of rules. And But now, you know, you can call juniors where back in the day you couldn't call before September 1st of their senior year. Uh, but obviously recruiting now has gotten to be so much younger. In the last couple of years that I was at FIU, we would – we would actually get a few eighth graders committed, uh, which is something in the past you would never do. So I think one of the biggest things, without a doubt, is bringing in guys to visit before their senior year uh, and really getting younger and younger in regards to recruiting athletes and trying to get them to commit to your university literally four to five years before they would ever show up. Wow, things things change rapidly in the uh, in the baseball world. Um, what about if if you had to kind of identify the biggest difference between the high school game for kids? You know, kids think they want to play in college. What's the biggest difference for a kid going from high school to college? What what is it that maybe you wish they knew that they didn't know? You know, the level of competition is so much higher in college because. You know, as you move up the ladder, and baseball is like a mountain. Youth baseball, kids that are like 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, are certainly the biggest uh, venue of players that there's out there. As you move up that mountain, the mountain as it gets, you know, toward the peak, gets a little bit smaller, smaller, smaller. So that's like the major league guys at the very peak of the mountain. So a lot of youth players. But what happens every time that you move up to another level, there's kids that might not be able to have enough talent to move to that next level. So you're taking the best, maybe the best one or two high school players into college from a high school team, and then when you go from college into professional baseball, you know, you're taking – maybe one, two, unless it's the bigger universities like a Mississippi State, Vanderbilt, places like that, you're only taking a couple of guys into the draft, into professional baseball, and, of course, they're weeded out as you go from rookie league, low A, high A, double A, triple A, big leagues uh, as you go up the ladder. So the competition gets so much bigger, higher, tougher as you move up the ladder as a baseball player. Now, you had mentioned that you're working with the Rangers now, and, I, and in just a second, actually, we're going to switch gears and jump into to a new project you've been working on. But one last take on, on something. You're in professional baseball now. Um, can you speak to how the game is played today, evaluated today, 
uh, metrics. Can you speak to the status of professional baseball today? You know, when you go from college into professional baseball, and, and to be honest with you, when I was in college, I thought, well, I know a little bit about the game. And honestly, when I got into pro baseball, I discovered that I really didn't know much of anything because at every level, there's an analyst there that is just full of metrics. I mean, literally every week, there's two or three more analytic terms, abbreviations that come up. Um, so as you move up the ladder, you are really evaluated so much by numbers, by analytic numbers, you know, like launch angle and exit velo and uh, nitro percentage, how often you hit the ball hard and really square it up at, at certain exit velocity and stuff like that. There's things called barrels and, and that sort of thing. So as a hitter, you know, as a catcher, which is a big thing for me, you're certainly evaluated on what is known as SL plus, which is strikes looking above average. And the plus stands for uh, the different leagues, like they evaluate it different on low A than they do double A and triple A and things like that. So there are so many numbers as you get into pro baseball that determines whether you're going to move to the next level or not, or maybe unfortunately get released. So it's so much of a numbers game, especially when you get into professional baseball. And and how about the way the game is played at the professional level? It it seems, again, just as a fan uh, looking at the game, you know, the absence of great base running and and uh, maybe uh, some creative offensive scenarios, you know, some safety squeezes or squeezes or um, you know even your first to thirds and bunting. It seems like the game, you know does much less of that today. Uh, do you see that? Is that accurate? And do you see that sticking around? You, you hit the proverbial nail right on the head there because you're right. It's, it's so much about power pitching, strikeouts, um, you know, hopefully the absence of base on balls. And then, you know, swinging the bat is so much about doubles and homers you know, extra base hits and stuff like that, power hitting. And obviously anything above a single is determined as, you know, a powerful power hit. So you're right. In professional baseball, the idea of a sacrifice bump may be in the ninth inning, mantle first and second potentially, but safety squeezes, uh, the short game, other than an occasional drag or push bunt, is really not there. Now, we do work quite a bit on first to thirds and, you know, turns on the bases and trying to take as few steps between the bases as possible. So, yes, there are uh, things that we do a lot in spring training. We do early work each day before, you know, before the game starts and, the opposing team gets on the field to do their workouts. So we are working on uh, team defensive-oriented type of things like first and third, but they just don't really come up that, that much. It's more kind of straight baseball without the flair in there, so to speak. So now let's uh, transition a little bit. You've been involved in kind of a, a new project. You have um, – 
just released an instructional video on catching. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure can. Um, back during the pandemic, uh, I went over to what used to be the old Phillies Major League Complex there in Clearwater, and uh, the stands aren't there anymore, but the field is basically the same. Plus, they had a, a turf field behind the right field fence, and within a couple of miles from that complex, I had a good friend that owns a nice indoor place. So I was able to use those three venues to do this. I got the New York Yankee videographer. Now he's a freelance guy now, but he was with the Yankees for many years and still does a lot of things with the Yankees on the freelance side. Um, and one of our minor league catchers with the Texas Rangers, who's really enthusiastic, uh, we film for 11 days, seven to eight hours a day. But once you take out some bad takes or, you know, maybe not as good a takes as you would like. And sometimes you have to do things four or five times, especially a guy like me that can screw things up. Um, <laughs> we we went from the analytic stuff in, uh, in, in catching. We talked all about the different type of analytic equipment that's there from Hawkeye and TrackMan and StatCast and all that sort of thing, Rapsodo. Um, and the inner workings of some of those, we talked about the invisible strike zone. Like in 1876, the strike zone literally was 12 inches above the level of the plate. It didn't matter if you were six foot six or five foot six. That's where the lower boundary of the strike zone was. And then, you know, there were changes in 1963, 1968, 1988, 1996. To today, what is known as the parabolic strike zone which is literally the shape of an egg or a little bit oval shaped. Um, we talk, we work really hard on all the nine different stances you got, the different glove loads, uh, the different uh, forms of manipulation for certain zones, how to catch balls in and out of the strike zone. Uh, then we put in a lot of uh, uh, machine you know, receiving drills and bare hand receiving drills. Then we went into blocking, uh, we went into the throwing, and we divided all that up into a lot of different sections. Like throwing, for example, was things like lead up drills, stride position drills, transfer drills, arm action drills, footwork drills, accuracy drills, and there were a number of drills in each section, so to speak. And then we finished it up with you know, a lot of the other plays like pop-ups, there must have been 10 different drills we showed on pop-ups, bunts, plays at the plate. And we have a long section at the end, a PowerPoint section, on catcher pitch calling. Uh, so very detailed, 10 full hours of information and probably about 175 different catching drills in this video. You know, Turtle, I, I've been privileged enough to to preview this, and, you know, I've seen a lot of nice and good, you know, baseball instructional videos uh, on a lot of different topics. But this one is really uh, by far the best I've seen on catching. I think you guys have done a great job, and I think you've done a tremendous service to all the coaches and parents out there that want to get their kids a head start. It is really, really good. 
correct. Well, I appreciate it very much, and um, I try to fool as many people as I possibly can there, I guess. But, <laughs> you know, uh, the, the thing that's interesting is that you can almost redo some sections of it every year because things are constantly changing, not so much on the throwing part, not so much on the blocking part, even though there's new drills, new, new things, but so much on receiving because every club, every organization has their own way that they teach it. And we were lucky enough with the Texas Rangers to have the number one and number three receiver in the big leagues last year. And uh, our major league catching coordinator does a really good job, particularly in receiving. Uh, Terrell, who would you, uh, if you, if you had to uh, articulate, I mean, who, who is the attendant audience? Is it, is it for coaches? Is it for clubs? Is it for a parent? Is it for all of these? You know, when we try to do things, and, and I've done 13 videos before, seven on hitting, three on strength training, and actually three on catching, hour on receiving, hour on blocking, hour on throwing. But this is really geared toward almost any age, any uh, level of experience for coaches, um, so really a lot for coaches, certainly, particularly ones that work with the team, work on private lessons. It's great because there's so many drills there that you can, you know, food for thought to work with your players you're, you're working with. And so parents, players, absolutely, literally from age seven and eight all the way up through professional baseball players. Hey, what was the most uh, challenging part of making that video? What was what did you find the most difficult? You know, that's a that's a great question. Um, you know, just making sure that you have the right demonstrator. Like we use one young man to begin with, and maybe not quite what we were looking for, and the other young man that I got. Uh, a guy by the name of Scott Capers came down from Indiana, and one hardworking, energetic, enthusiastic guy, if I did it for 16 hours a day, he would be right there working hard to, to get it done. So just finding really the right person <clears throat> that can video it, edit it the correct way, make some good suggestions along the way, and having the right demonstrator are probably the things in the beginning that made it the most uh, challenging, interesting. And once we got the right people, you know, it, it rolled pretty good. Hey, you mentioned uh, you had a section in there on, on calling pitches and so forth. Uh, just just kind of a side question here. Uh, at the high school level um, and then at the college level, who do you like calling the game? Do you like the catcher calling the game? Do you like coming in from the coach, and what's your reasoning? You know, that's, a again, a tremendous question because, you know, in college baseball, I always thought that the pitching coach should call it because he had more privy information from video and, and synergy and things like that on other teams. Uh, but yet, in pro baseball, it's, it's always – the catcher that calls it for the most part, unless you're down in like the Dominican or, or a rookie league like in Arizona or something like that, you might, the first few 
weeks or something, you might call the pitches as a pitching coach and let the catcher thing along, think along with you and then let him go from there. But for me today, I really think for the, the, the catcher to develop, the catcher needs to call the pitches. Yeah, I, I had done it both in my career, and, and honestly, I, I kind of evolved to the idea that that's, that's the best way. I think the kids grow more. They get a chance to make their mistakes, and good coaches get a chance to, you know, grab them between innings and say, hey, what's going on? Why did you do it? Correct. I mean, you're always thinking like three or four or maybe even three or four innings ahead, but you want to think three or four pitches ahead. You want to think about the first, say, five guys coming up in this inning potentially, how you're going to pitch them, you know, what's your attack mode, so to speak, and that sort of thing. And, you know, just what they did last time at bat, uh, how many pitches did they get? I'll give you a good example. Let's say a young man strikes out or especially strikes out looking. You can almost bet your bottom dollar that he's going to swing at the first pitch next time because in his mind he doesn't want to strike out again, so he wants to put the ball in play early in the count. So that's one of the things. It's just a little thing, but it's really something that's so important in pitch calling because maybe you still throw a strike, but a very well-located strike. That's a great idea. That's a great thought. This is the beautiful that comment to me represents the beauty of baseball. There is so much to the game that's under the hood that most of us don't know, haven't thought about. Um, and you can be around the game a long time and still be learning so much about the game from others. It's great. No doubt. You know, every day, for example, I would make – we had a very intricate uh, catching chart uh, that we kept and all the times between innings to second base and during the game and all the blocks and what count, you know, say we had a successful or unsuccessful block, just a lot of different things, as well as some exceptional receiving technique or maybe not so good a receiving technique. But we would always have a section on the back of the chart for catcher game notes. So I would make anywhere from like, seven or eight to maybe 20 different game notes during the game. And then we would review those as the catcher came in the next day. And I always thought that was a great way to get them to understand the thought process. I'll give you a good one, if I may. Sure. We had a, a, game, we had a game in high A last year in Hickory. And we're losing two to one. It's in Greenville, South Carolina. They're the Red Sox. They have this 37 – a foot, two-inch wall like like uh, the Green Monster in Boston. And um, we have a pitcher on the mound that's 90-91, just very average below for pro baseball, probably a little bit below average. So we've got the hitter like a 1-2, excuse me, an 0-2 count. And so we throw one, eh, maybe belt to belly button, there's a run on third base, one out. We cannot afford to give up another run because it's one of those games that we're just we're not going to score another run. We can play 20 in, innings, but we're not going to score another run. So we can't afford to give up another one. 
Well, sure enough, the guy hits one to the base of the left field wall, deep sack fly, guy scores, we get beat three to one. And I told our catcher after the game, here's the difference. That level at 90-91 is not elevated enough because his velocity is not going to get it by the hitter. If the guy was like 95-96 and he threw it that height, he's probably going to get a swing and miss, foul ball, pop up in the infield, and we get, you know, we get that second out. But at that pitcher's velocity, we didn't have enough stuff to get it by him. And sure enough, you know, the catcher understood after I explained it to him after the game. That's awesome. That is, that's great teaching, and that's a great point, something for all of us to learn. Um, now, here's my question for you. Let's, let's, uh, I'm going to put you at a youth baseball practice, okay? Maybe the kids are 10 or 11. What is it that you think that youth catcher should be doing to improve his catching um, at, his, at his practice? What are the most important things that a young catcher should be doing? Well, first of all, you want to get him in a good, workable, usable stance that he feels comfortable with. I know in today, you know, a lot of coaches hate one knee down. Uh, they'll use a strictly a, a primary or secondary stance with both knees up. And that's probably good for a younger catcher uh, to do that. So you want to get him in a good, usable stance that he can move from and that that situation. And then you're going to do a lot of dry teaching, like receiving different parts of the strike zone and stuff like that with no ball involved. Get him to understand that I'm trying to receive a high pitch this way, a low pitch this way, making some type of, we call it maneuver, uh, manipulation or move, you know, in, in catching this particular pitch. And then we're going to start, you know, front tossing him some balls uh, so he can work on receiving that. And then you're going to back up and maybe get on knee and throw some balls to him. And then eventually get to, if he's, you know, getting comfortable with everything, maybe get a pitching machine that might not throw that hard to him, but something he can handle um, and that sort of thing. So it's a building process from doing things dry all the way up to what gives you the most velocity of any apparatus would be a pitching machine. And and at what point in time? Um, so we, we we've got we've got him working on his receiving, uh, and then of course I, I would imagine there's got to be a point in time when you're going to go into your blocking and your throwing. Correct, correct. I think you can go into the throwing, you know, pretty pretty early on, and like we had stated before, doing some some uh, lead-up drills like footwork stuff and directional stuff with your feet, making sure. We always call a catcher that when he throws to second base, you don't want his head to leap to the third base side. That's called trunk dump. So your upper torso, your upper trunk, if it leaks out to the left, you're either going to elevate your arm and, and miss your target or most likely drop your elbow and the ball's going to tail and maybe sink towards second base. So you always want to keep that glove shoulder right on path as long as you can when you throw to second base, for example. So you're doing some lead-up drills and, again, 
for younger kids doing things dry without a ball involved, to me, is such an important factor because then they start thinking about, just like in hitting, where the ball goes, how hard they hit it. They forget what their techniques and mechanics are all about. Well, the same thing's true in catching. It's so important every day to do some stuff dry, um, you know, to work on that. Now, I think in blocking, for example, we break blocking really into three different things. We do uh, dry drills, again, no ball involved. Then we do some lead-up drills where we might be using, like, like tennis balls or, or incredible balls or, like, there's something with Franklin Sports, which are they're the size of baseballs or colored balls, but they're rubber. They're very, very bouncy, for example. And you kind of lead up to the regular ball because that might hurt a little bit more if it uh, if it catches some skin and soft tissue and things like that. So I think again, everything you're doing for the younger catcher and uh, even for the hitter, I think it's all about you know a lead up process from dry all the way up to the real live action. And what is it that you'd like to see a kid that's really into baseball? He's enthusiastic. He's 12 or 13. He doesn't have practice today. What can he do on his own? You know, there's a lot of things you can do, for example. Like, let's say you take lacrosse balls, for example, and you go to a maybe a cinder block, concrete, brick wall somewhere, and maybe you get somebody, a friend or a, a a teammate or something like that it could even be mom or dad, and they can throw some balls off the wall from your left, your right, and you're catching, you're doing wall ball, for example. And you gotcha. always want to do it on both knees first. Why? Because then you're really focused on what your hands do, what your glove does as you receive these balls. Now, a lot of times you'll do this barehanded, for example, and then you lead into getting a smaller mitt, a trainer mitt, and then your regular mitt, things like that, for example. Even getting somebody to hit you fungos at second base, third base, or whatever, because that works on your hands, and you've got to be able to manipulate your hands on a bad bounce or the bounce of the ball to work on making quick reactions to receive a ball cleanly, for example. When you're working you're always trying to get that good loud pop, means you caught the ball in the deepest part of your glove, the pocket, versus the web, which is the thinnest part of the glove, or down in the palm of the hand, which, you know, there's not much give, there's not much, uh, you know, as you receive that particular pitch. So receiving the ball in the pocket of the glove is always a big, big key. Heck, when we go to the Dominican Republic, because they're so young and so raw, just catching the ball cleanly in the right part of the glove is so important, for example. Uh, doing some dry footwork drills, doing some agility drills, um, you know, just different things like that can make a player better. And I always say, and I know you say the same thing, Steve, is that if you only work when the coach is on the field, you're never going to develop to your maximum skill level that you've got within yourself so you've got to always work constantly when the coach is not on the field. You know, it's a, it's a great thought, and I, I used to always tell our kids uh, champions are made when nobody's looking. Um, 
And it's, I think it's the same thing when we try to get kids to grow up and make good decisions on life. You know, good, good decisions are made when nobody's looking. And, uh, it's, uh, I think it's a great, great thought. Um, hey, just for a second, can we talk for about, about youth baseball? Um, sure. Are the, are the kids playing too much, too many games, not enough practice? Or are we, are we playing, uh, not enough? What do you think? What's your take? You know, it's interesting because, for 25 years in the off season, I have done baseball camps all over the country, and I'm talking about from San Jose, California, Denver, New Orleans, Dallas. I mean, I've done them all over the place, and I spend most of my weekends on the off season and some during the week, you know, going to various places that we've kind of built up a clientele for. And so I see youth baseball so much because, let's face it, the kids that go to camps are so much like 8 to 14 years old for the most part. You know, you'll get some older ones sometimes, but and you'll even get, you know, five, six, seven-year-olds sometimes. But that's normally the ones that go. So I've seen a lot of young men in youth baseball, and that's the ones that have the most energy, the most enthusiasm for it. You know, I think you're right. There's some organizations potentially that do – play so much and maybe don't really get so much practice time in. To me, I think it's so important that if you're in an organization and, um, you know, you're playing for a certain team or whatever it might be, you want to try to get with one that's going to practice a couple of times a week if possible and then maybe play a weekend tournament and that sort of thing. So it all depends on a young man's appetite, hunger for baseball. Some of them just can't wait to get to the next game. Some it's like, oh, we got another tournament this weekend. And those guys that can't wait, they're the ones that are going to make it and be successful in the game of baseball, you know, if their skill level is pretty good. So I think you can go both ways. Some probably maybe we do play too much in certain respects and don't get enough practice time and don't work on the mechanics, mechanics and techniques of their skill set very much. And the others, you know, maybe it's not, not enough. Maybe they're not in an organization that practices enough or plays enough, and they just have a bigger appetite for the game of baseball. Hey, what is it, when you think of all those kids in youth baseball, what is it that you hope um, these kids get from their baseball experience? Fun is number one. I think them enjoying the game and having fun is so important. Like one of the things that just in my opinion I think is so good is at the end of practice every day, you need to have some type of competition amongst the catchers, the hitters, the pitcher, whatever it might be. We used to have a a guy – that was in our organization, that he would be down the Dominican and he would have a lot of his pitchers out on a, a separate field. And he would actually be behind the plate with a mid on, and it was a strike contest. So they would throw a fastball, and if it, was a, if it was a strike, they threw another one until they threw a ball. If they threw a ball, then the next guy stepped up to the mound, took his wind up, made the pitch, and it was really focused on throwing strikes. 
like I think one of the great drills is being in a batting cage and giving them a point system for everything that good happens, like a hard ground ball gets them a point. A line drive against the, the pull side side net is two points. A line drive against the oppo side net is three points. A line drive that hits the back net or through the L screen of a coach pitching, you know, gives them five points, for example. And then if they take a strike, you know, that's minus one. If they swing and miss, that's minus one. If they hit a pop-up, that hits the top in front of the L screen, that's minus three points or something to that effect. If they hit a weak uh, foul ball, weak ball, that might be minus a point. And it's a competitive type of thing, and you're dividing your team, like, into three different groups, and you try to put your three best hitters on three separate teams, your three not-so-good hitters on three separate teams. So you try to make the teams as equal as you can, and maybe they get five swings every round, and you play like six innings or something like that as you go through it, and somebody keeps score, you know, all the pluses and all the minuses at the end of six innings, who wins? And the one that wins, you know, gets, uh, I don't know, gets a bag of popcorn or something like that, or gets a Gatorade or something like that. You know, the one that uh, maybe finishes second, you know, or second and third, maybe they got to clean up the field and clean up the dugouts and rake the field and whatever it might be, clean up the equipment, something like that, for example. Yeah, that is great. That is great stuff. Hey, Turtle, listen, uh, I know I've, I've taken up enough of your time, but I, I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for uh, your enthusiasm for the game. And uh, I certainly wish you the very, very best with your catching instructional video. I know it's going to be a big hit. Steve, thank you very much for having me. I tell you, love to talk baseball anytime. Hey, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed our conversation with Turtle Thomas, longtime collegiate and professional coach. Hey, one thing I want to mention is the idea of fun. Make sure all your practices are fun, fast-paced, and beneficial. The kids have to buy into the idea they're getting better by coming to your practice. Also, Turtle mentioned that at the end of a workout, try to implement some sort of fun and competitive drill. It's always a great way to end a practice. We also talked about the benefits of having your catcher call the game and then maybe discuss with your catcher after the inning or after the game ways that he can improve his decision making behind the plate. I want to remind everyone that Turtle's releasing a wonderful catching video. This video is for players, coaches, parents, and instructors of all levels. It is really, really good. And you can get this on our Coach Baseball Right website. Hey, thanks again for listening, and I want to ask everyone to please share the link to this Coach Baseball Right podcast episode on Facebook and Twitter.